Amen. Oh, amen. Glad you're with us this morning. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. And today we're going to be in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 26. Probably the first page. So feel free to turn or tap your way there. Shouldn't be that difficult today. We're going to have those verses on the screen for you. So if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please don't panic. And we'd love to give you a copy on your way out. So, you know, we just finished up talking about suffering. And uh, generally, that's not something that pastors get excited about preaching. It's generally considered more of a difficult topic to handle or manage. Uh, You can imagine that you can imagine that. And so uh, we wanted to take the next time, and it's just going to be three weeks uh, of this series, the next sort of series, and uh, and just double down. We're just going to get even harder. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why we always do it that way, but uh, it's just we are a church that believes the Bible to be true, and part of the reason we believe that it, it all comes back to Jesus, quality of his life, the historical evidence for the resurrection, the preaching that he preached, the name it. <laughs> But when you come to a belief in Jesus, then you have in the teaching of Jesus both his assurance of, his faith in, his declaring that. What we call the Old Testament is Scripture. He called it Scripture. And the guys who then write the New Testament are his apostles. They're given by him this authority. And so Old Testament and New, we consider to be God's Word based on our faith in Jesus. Now... As a church, when we sit down to say, okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to talk about? What are we going to teach on? And what's our authority for teaching on it? It all comes back to Bible. And generally, we try to make sure that you get as much of the whole counsel of God as we can give you. So we're going to try and take this whole giant book. And if you got it digitally, it's hard to see how big it is maybe. But if you have a paper copy, it's not small. You take a swing at your brother with it, he'll notice. It's a thing. It's heavy and it's big. And if you want to take that whole big book and shove it into the brains of lots of different people in like 27 minutes a week, you really have to work. And so part of what we do is we try to to go back and forth. If we've been in the Old Testament, we go to the New. If we've been in the New for a while, we go back to the Old. If we've been doing a lot of prophecy, then we go and we start to look at epistles. And if we've been doing a lot of history, then let's talk about some of the poetry. We try to give you the whole counsel of God. And we are beholden to God to preach on the things that you need to know in order to be equipped to know what Jesus would speak to our culture. So, the places where our culture runs most contrary to the gospel are places that we need to give attention. You certainly need to know why Christians think this way or why the scriptures teach this way. You're evaluating Christianity. This might be one of the big hurdles that makes it difficult for you to believe. So, yeah, this isn't necessarily an easy thing to talk about, but it's necessary. And it's odd that it's not an easy thing to talk about in some ways. Because humanity for several millennia and global opinion everywhere but pretty much the West is unanimous about this fact 
And yet, when I say it, there's a part of me that wants to duck. Something's going to come at me. Old times, big churches, they used to have these big pulpits that'd be wooden. The pastor would come up and you'd just see his head. Because he's behind this big giant thing. Sermons like this, I get that. Because this doesn't seem to provide a lot of protection. But here, here's, here's what we got to talk about. This is what's true. Men and women are different. All right. Fantastic. I feel like we've already gotten pretty far. And I don't know that it was open animosity first service, but there was no amens. Uh, but yeah, men and women are different. And that's intentional. So we're going to spend three weeks talking about how men and women are different, how God designed it that way. He did that on purpose. And we're going to understand some of those distinctions so that as we live them out, we will honor God in the way that our families operate. If you're not married or have kids, you still are a participant in a gender. <laughs> you still fit into the broad category of male or female and must then accept that God's made you that way. Our intention with all this is to give you freedom. The freedom to live as you were made to live. Rather than the pain of trying to swim up against a current that you were never made to swim up. Now, as we talk about something like this, we've got to go to the place in Scripture where I think we have the, the sort of basis of it. And the basis of these ideas, or the first place where these ideas are kind of brought up, is in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. So you don't get very far into the Bible without this concept coming up. But I think if we can understand what these two verses say in, in some broad stroke, it's going to really inform what we say going forward the next two weeks. Genesis chapter 1, starting verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us... Plural, Trinity, interesting. Let us make man in our image. Remember that word? After our likeness. And let them, again, plural, have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the livestock, all the earth, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, they have dominion over. We have dominion over. And then it says, 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, get ready, male and female, he created them. What we're going to do today, and I hope that it sets a, a nice big stage for what we're going to be doing the next two weeks, is talk about what I think is the root issue and do a preliminary statement that there is a similarity to men and women that also has to be kept in your head as you think about what's different. So first, let's think first about this, this root issue. I think one of the problems that most people have with what the Bible says about men and women or the way that we are supposed to be as men and women 
I think it, it comes from this idea, the premise of these two verses, which is that God made us. What do we think about that? Well, what would that mean about you if you were made by God? It means a lot of things. But one of the things it definitely means is that you are going to be under His definition of you. He gets to write out your purpose, your identity, what you should be, what you shouldn't be. He started you and He did it on purpose and He did it with uh, an artist's eye. Now He's in control of you. What do you think about that? Because I think that when we get down to our, our beef with God when it comes to male and female and the way that he sets up those roles, our, our beef goes way deeper than just boys and girls. I think our frustration with God and even our angst against him goes back to a rebellion that goes way deeper. You go to the doctor and they start using your symptoms in order to find the disease. It's not a good doctor that just treats your symptoms. They need to find the underlying disease. A tree, a tree produces fruit, but that fruit comes from a root. And our rebellion against God comes from a specific spot. Our frustration with specific things that God has said, it goes back to something that's deeper, that's fuller, that goes down in us further. And here's what I think it is. I mean, I think we used to have, culturally in the West, we used to have this sort of unanimous opinion that there was a God and that he's in charge. There's tons of sin, there's all kinds of weird stuff going on, but they at least had that. Fast forward several hundred years, and that slowly and then maybe more quickly drops off. The great throne over all the universe becomes empty. And once that throne is empty, we have the opportunity to take it, to sit there ourselves. And can I tell you that that's part of the motivation for pretending like he's not on that throne. We need him to vacate if we're going to sit. We need him to get out of the way if we're going to start making our own decisions. So that's what we do. And when God leaves the throne, it's us that sit on it. And here's how I'm going to attempt to prove that. There's a poem called Invictus by a guy named William Ernest Henley. And the last stanza, stanza says this. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I don't know how into poetry you are, but when the, the great in our culture, the high, try to assemble people, unify, encourage people around some kind of a battle cry, some kind of a rally cry, it's shocking how often these verses come up. This isn't Bible, this is just a poem. But the poem captures something that we feel, or at least that we want to feel. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. September 9th, 1941, Winston Churchill, he paraphrases the last two lines of this poem to the House of Commons to unite the UK in their war against uh, the, not just the axis of evil, but specifically Germany. He says, we are still masters of our fate. 
We are still captains of our soul. Nelson Mandela, incarcerated Robin Island prison, recites this poem to other prisoners and is empowered by its message of self-mastery. You may have seen the movie about Nelson Mandela with Morgan Freeman and Matt Damon. Do you know the name of that movie? Invictus, this poem. U.S. prisoners of war in North Vietnam. There's a guy named James Stockdale, and he recalls being passed this last stanza written with rat droppings on toilet paper from fellow prisoner David Hatcher. If you're willing to write something with rat droppings on toilet paper, it's important. Daily Mirror, when the UK was, uh, had the bombings in London, July 7, 2005, the headline of the, uh, the next day said, Bloodied but unbowed. Again, from the same poem. Why? Because we have as a conviction, socially, not in the church, but socially we have as a conviction that we are the masters of our faith. We are the captains of our souls. And so when you have something that challenges that basic premise, that challenge is going to be met with fury. And Christianity, from the get-go, challenges that premise. That's part of why Christianity has traditionally been much more appealing to people who have screwed up their lives. Because they're sitting there saying, I don't need to be captain." I don't know a lot about what you're talking about. What I do know is I am totally unsuited for the captainship of my life. <laughs> Fantastic. You're in exactly the right place. The trick is that the people who think they're doing really well are equally unfit. They've just chosen to believe that they're killing it because they've changed the rules. That's what the Pharisees were in the New Testament. And those are people that you meet on a daily basis. And maybe are. What we have to understand is that our main goal is first understanding who God says we are. Submitting to who God says we are. Because if it's Him that's saying it, now these ideas have a lot more weight, don't they? It's not just tradition and it's not just our observations based on physiology. It goes from the mouth of the divine King. So, understanding our main issue and our main authority here, let's now take a step towards remembering what is the same about men and women. One of the ways in which a lot of people attack these roles or the idea that men and women are different and should be treated differently, one of the ways people attack that is they say that as soon as you create two different groups rather than one, as soon as you say men and women, you now have the opportunity for competition and oppression. As soon as you draw a line in the sand between two groups, immediately they can start to hate each other and work against each other. And that definitely happens when you put men in control of women. This is what's said. This is an idea that's out there. And they start pulling out all these horrible, horrible, horrible statistics about ways that men have abused women. And they're frightening. They're terrible. But is that what the Bible is first and foremost insisting? I don't think so. The first thing that we're getting from Genesis 1, 26, 27, other than the fact that we have been made by God, made in His image, 
is that we are both male and female made in his image. We're the same in our personhood. And as people, we have both tarnished that image. So the problem with men leading women is not the system. The problem is the men and the women. Here's what I mean by that. God said in the beginning, Genesis 1, 26, 27, you're going to make man in our own image after our likeness. It says at the bottom of 27, he created them in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Male and female are made in his image. And you don't go much further in scripture before that word image just sort of disappears. And it's kind of weird. We're getting defined it's telling us who we are, and it says we're made in His image. And then you don't see the word image anymore. Why? Because chapter 3 of Genesis talks about how we reflect not anymore God because we've fallen, we rebel against God, and so now we reflect something else. To say you're made in somebody's image, you, you reflect aspects of that person. That, that There's something about that one that you reflect to the world. And when we disobeyed God, this comes up in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent and they choose to be deceived and they, they were deceived but they also choose it and they take and they eat. God gave them one law and they break that one law. When that happens, now the primary thing that they're doing is not being image bearers of God but a different word. Because as soon as you see the word image disappear, you start to see the word idol come up. And it comes up a lot. You start to see it over and over and over again throughout the scripture. Where these people, this humanity, is constantly adopting for themselves idols. Meaning, other things that they have decided to worship than God. And again, we can get high and mighty about it and say like, well, they had these little things that they would carve out of wood or stone or gold or whatever. And that they would pretend like those things represented these gods that they invented for themselves. And... Man, how silly is it to think that this little figurine in your house, when you give it an orange, is somehow going to bless you? Isn't that silly? But the idea, biblically, is that you and I are doing the exact same thing. When you take the secular brush and you paint over idolatry, you still have idolatry. You just have it in a different way. You still find your ultimate security, your ultimate satisfaction, your ultimate sort of means for defining yourself as an individual from something or someone. And the answer to that question, where you find your primary security, satisfaction, identity, the answer to that question, that's your idol. And the scripture is very clear that while we were made in the image of God, we have changed over, we've exchanged, it says in Romans 1.23, that we have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Do you see that? We were made in His image, and yet we exchanged that image for these other images. Things made in our own likeness that we then set up. Where God is the source of all light, and that light is supposed to be coming to us and then bouncing out from us. We hid Him, and we tried to reflect other things that don't give any light. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. You take that light and you hide it, all you have left is 
darkness. They blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see what happened there? We had this initial charge of being made in his image. We fall, we go away from that, we choose these idols. And you have all this idolatry taking place throughout all the scripture, all the Old Testament, until you get to the New Testament, when what happens? Jesus. And who is Jesus? Jesus is God, but he's also man. And as a man, he is perfect. And if he's perfect, what do we mean about him? We mean that he is what Adam was supposed to be. He is finally fully an image bearer of God. The darkness that we bring on ourselves by choosing these idols is broken into when God and the person of Jesus comes and the image, the image of God, it takes God's glory and his light and reflects it out to the world. Jesus is the image of God. And through him, we can now see the light of the gospel of the glory of God. So we come to Jesus now and he say, well, OK, I have all of these idols. I have tried to be the captain of my soul, but you can change me. And so we come to Jesus now. And we go say, Lord, please, will you take over? Forgive me. Cleanse me. Restore your light to me. And then we're able to say. In 2 Corinthians 3.8, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes with the Lord, from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you see what's happening? Through Jesus, God allows you again to sit before him and to sort of be made in his image, to reflect who he is to the world. But you're all dirty, you're all dark, you've had all these different issues. And just degree by degree, he starts cleaning you off. And making you, again, making you new in order to be made in his image. To be his follower. And this is exactly what we are called to in Christ. And this calling, this bringing us along, this, this removing of our idolatry, this remaking of us, this core identity is both male and female. So how are we the same? We're the same in the sense that we are both made in God's image. And as his image bears, we have fallen and been made clean through Jesus. All of those things are the same. Here's a verse. Galatians 3.28. Now, if you start reading more and more about how men and women are perceived by Scripture, some of the people who will try and say that we are absolutely the same and that there are no distinctions will go to this verse. Galatians 3.28. And they'll say, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Have you heard that verse before? Have you heard it in this context before? If so, let me just do a little bit of hermeneutics with you and say that what this verse is talking about is not whether or not men and women exist. Not about whether or not men and women are the same. You can look at your relationships. You can look in your pants and realize men and women are not the same. It's clearly not saying that. What is it saying? Well, let's just zoom out a little bit. It says in verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you're all sons of God through faith. 
As many of you were baptized, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. So we're talking about salvation. Now, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave, free, male or female. You're all one. You're all saved in one way through Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Do you see that? The Bible is saying that we are the same as his image bearers and we are the same in the way that he recovers that image, in the way that he saves us. There's not two lanes. Women are not dependent upon men for their salvation. God reaches out and he saves both of them. In John chapters 3 and 4, it's really, really impressive. You have John uh, describing Jesus meeting Nicodemus, who from a traditional perspective is at the top of the totem pole. He's a man, he's a Jew, he's a Pharisee. The next chapter, you have Jesus speaking to a Samaritan woman. She was an adulterous Samaritan woman. Culturally, she was at the bottom of the totem pole. And yet, you have Jesus going hard after both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Why? Was Jesus just supposed to be like a rabble-rouser? Or... Did he value both men and women? Did he offer salvation to both men and women the same? Of course, it's the second one. Now, if that's true, if we believe that women are, as 1 Peter 3, 7 says, fellow heirs of the grace of life, then we can step back and just sort of enjoy. <laughs> you can enjoy. You can enjoy being a part of a culture where even though they are constantly trying to tweak you and, and control you and bring you into a different understanding of who men and women are, you can just enjoy the way that God's made us. I, I don't have to make that argument anymore. I don't have to go back and forth anymore. I just can trust what God's given us. In our culture, and we just talked about this, I was in the student ministry for two seconds before I came in here, and I talked about Galatians 1.10. This is what it says. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I'm still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You can see why that matters for students. In your teenage years, you are constantly trying to understand who you are, and you are very affected by the culture around you, your little microculture. Not just your high school, but like the cool kids or the jock kids or the nerd kids or whatever. And your little microgroup that you're in heavily affects who you are, right? Has anything changed, really? When it comes to your understanding of men and women, is that something that you have found on your own? Or is it something that the, the culture is manipulating you into believing? If so, you're probably led by fear. Fear that you are not going to be accepted by the culture if you don't minutely follow what the culture prescribes for you when it comes to either what it is to be a man or a woman or kind of the more modern thought, which is there is no such thing as men and women. And that fear is going to put a hook in your nose and it's going to lead you around to all kinds of different things. You can see that in our media. People that were really big cultural influencers 50 years ago said things that today would mean they were foreboding. Why? Because 10 minutes ago it was this, and now it's this. And, oh, okay, well, here we go. No. You do this God's way, and you're free to just enjoy His way. And you're free to enjoy what He has made you to be. 
totally accepted by him, one degree of glory to another, as you're slowly becoming what he's making you, you're able to enjoy just being a man or a woman. Now, like I said, in the next two weeks, we're going to talk more specifically about what the Bible says is for men and for women. But I ask you, as you sit through those, if you are willing to come back and take that next step with us, to first examine your heart and say, and what I really, is what I'm really upset about, these categories? Or is there something further down in me that says that God does not have the right to tell me who I am and who others are around me? Okay, let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I just ask right now that you would make our resistance clear. And Father, if we don't have resistance, if we have an uncritical acceptance of these things, that's almost as dangerous. I pray that we would be people who understand these things, not because we want to be countercultural or because we want to be cultural, but because we want to be faithful, because we want to be yours, because we want to do things your way. We trust and we see how you have loved us so well in Christ and his death for us on the, gospel, or on the cross. If you're that good there, can you also be good in these ways that make us so different from our culture? I pray, Father, that you would make us salt and light in a culture that says that things that make us distinct are bad. I pray that we'd be prepared and even be willing to suffer if that's what it means to be distinct and be distinctly yours. And I pray, Lord, that you would just give us wisdom. Specifically for me, Lord, please don't let me make this stuff about me or my thoughts, but all what you say in your word. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.